You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This segment is made possible by an educational grant from Shire Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to Updates from the Mayo Clinic, focusing on primary care pediatrics and child mental health. Here's your host, Dr. Peter S. Jensen, a childhood and adolescent psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome to this Mayo Clinic series on primary care child mental health. I am your host, Peter Jensen, a child psychiatrist here at Mayo Clinic, and I am delighted today to have one of my colleagues, Dr. Paul Corkin, a uh, assistant professor of psychiatry here at Mayo Clinic and an expert in the area of depression. Paul, welcome. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. Well, it, it's a great pleasure, and I'm particularly pleased because you are part of a team that has been focusing on primary care depression, and Paul's going to take us into the future today as we talk about both the current uh, as well as the future, as we talk about the biology of youth depression. So, Paul, I guess the first thing, um, you know, I've been aware from uh, the large federally funded treatment of adolescent depression studies, as well as other depression studies, that not every kid gets better with uh, some of our medication treatments, and even when they're combined with a therapy. So I'm wondering if you can tell us, maybe take a step back down to the level of the neuron. Uh, what do we know about depression and what's actually going on at the level of the neuron? Well, that's very very well said, Peter. As you as you as you suggested, you know, traditional treatments involve psychotherapy and usually medicines that act on the monoamine systems, things like serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And we've done some very, you know, as a field, we have some very impressive results from years of studies and um, well-designed trials that have looked at um, SSRIs in children and adolescents with, you know, severe to moderate depression. And we know 50% or more of the time, these um, these these options are often suboptimal, and and the you know the bulk of um, prior neurobiologic research is focused on the serotonin system, uh, with the idea that um, there's a deficit in this um, this uh, this brain chemical, or uh, either an up regulation or down regulation in in one or more of uh, various serotonin receptors. Um, probably in reality, it's much more much more complex than this. Um, and there are some more, you know, emerging theories looking at, at different neurotransmitter systems, um, GABA and glutamate in particular. I know you've been doing work in, in, in that area with uh, GABA and glutamate, and, and I know you're quite knowledgeable, obviously, about the serotonin system. Uh, would you say that these are our two most promising areas, or, or just how many neurotransmitters do you think might be involved in depression? There potentially are, are multiple or dozens involved, um, and it, Probably the safest bet with respect to the GAB and the glutamate system is that it, it more than likely is a key player just because they're both so ubiquitous in the central nervous system in the brain. But more than likely it is, as you've suggested, very complex with, you know, probably depressions. You know, different individuals have different symptomatology and different dysfunctions and different neurocircuitry pathways and neurochemicals. Uh, there has been much recent interest in in both GABA and glutamate in in that they are thought of as kind of the yin and the yang of the central nervous system. In that GABA 
um, primarily serves an inhibitory function, and glutamate is an excitatory function. And there's there's well-documented evidence from basic science studies that there, for instance, there's there's kind of um, GABA serotonin crosstalk in the um, in the RAFE nuclei um, and in areas like the nucleus accumbens. Um, there's there's much more work to be done. However, um, initial studies are very very interesting, and this theory has been looked at time and time again. Well, you know, one of the puzzles that I've often uh, thought was quite extraordinary, interesting, is that you can treat a child for ADHD and you'll get an immediate response. Why does it take so darn long for uh, the brain and the person to respond to some of these other treatments? So what's going on in the underlying circuits, do you think? And that's a that's an excellent question. And the traditional, you know, I think probably what you may have been taught in training somewhere along the way, and that I was taught that 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 we think that that may be may be involved to the idea that certain receptors have to downregulate on neurons, be it be it you know serotonin or beta-adrenergic. Um, that that by and large, though, if you look at the literature closely, is largely theoretically. Truth be told, I don't I don't think we really know why these um, standard antidepressants take so long. Um, to, to enact an effect on a, um, a suffering child or, or parent or family, um, which which points to some very interesting, you know, somewhat preliminary and controversial work that's looked in adults at the you know the, the ketamine story, which is along the lines of what I've been talking about with the glutamate. That there's been some very um, very preliminary but um, impressive um, research studies that have looked at the idea of administering ketamine to severely treatment-resistant depressed adults or suicidal adults with some pretty profoundly um, impressive results almost immediately. The patients are able to articulate that they, you know, they see, see color and feel, feel much better for a short time. Um, there's, you know, obviously a lot to be excited about in that regard, but there's also a lot to be skeptical about in that, you know, it's difficult to um, have proper controls for these studies. And there's really um, a lot of uncertainty about the safety of, of doing this and the long-term durability. And then thinking about an adolescent or a child in that regard, we, we would need much more, you know, much more granularity on the, on the, you know, the mechanism. And would this be something that, that would, be, would be safe and effective for a, for a developing brain? But it does kind of um, throw the spotlight on the um, one of the neurotransmitter systems I mentioned, the glutamatergic neuro, uh, neurotransmitter system, in that ketamine is a NMDA antagonist, which um, to me is, um, you know, I have kind of an idiosyncratic interest in this because some of the, um, the recent research we've done with transcranial magnetic stimulation, um, um, you know, is is sort of tangentially interesting in this regard in that we we recently looked at a group of depressed adolescents compared to some healthy healthy age and sex match controls we did this we were we recruited these these were these were children ages anywhere from ages um 7 to 18 years of age that were really really we thought clinically sick enough after a real detailed interview with family and the and the patient to to warrant treatment with an SSRI so we looked at we looked at um what are called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation measures of cortical inhibition and cortical excitability. And this, this is, I think you've had Dr. Wall um, on the program already. And um, when I talk about TMS, it's this is a much different kind of TMS in that we're not we're not providing treatment. This is a 
way to look at neurophysiologic paradigms that we think index the synaptic activity of certain certain chemicals such as GABA and glutamate. In a way, you're, I mean, you talk about glutamine and glutamate, I, we're talking about systems in balance. I mean, very complex systems, it seems like. And um, I guess the uh, all living creatures like to stay in balance, keep the same temperature, keep, you know, fed and uh, watered and, uh, you know, appropriate sleep. Is that part of what you're talking about, is systems in balance or out of balance? I, I believe you're right. And the, the actually the, the results of the study I had mentioned actually suggested that, that depressed children and adolescents may have a a cortical, an excess of cortical NMDA-mediated glutamatergic neurotransmission. So this would suggest that maybe early onset, early onset depression is associated with an imbalance in this inhibitory excitatory system. We know from other work that too much of a good thing, um, too much glutamate, is a bad thing through what's called neurotoxicity, and that this can have a a pernicious kind of um, you know toxic effect on other neurons, and theoretically that's one model for how you know a lifelong history of depressive symptoms and poorly poorly treated illness could lead to much more severe recalcitrant illness later in life. We're talking today with Dr. Paul Corkin, a national expert in the treatment and understanding the neurobiology as well as the treatment of uh, youth depression. Paul, I'm wondering. Um, do you think about these systems that are uh, in balance or sometimes not uh, seem to be, uh, you know, maybe tipped the wrong way on the scale one way or the other? Uh, is that because of genes or environment? How does that happen? Well, uh, it's probably a, a mixture of both is a short, easy answer that, you know, we know that we know that there are you know, from clinical practice, there are many individuals that have a, um, you know, tremendous uh, family burden, genetic genetic loading for depression. And we see those patients in clinic. We also see, you know, depression almost present spontaneously within a, within a family tree. Um, studies have suggested that it's probably a gene-environment interaction or stress diathesis model that certain, um, certain individuals have a genetic um, predilection to develop these symptoms, and life stressors also bring these out. Um, another, another kind of interesting, you know, basic science um, field that's looking at this in a much more sophisticated manner is the field of epigenetics with the idea that we think that we think that really you know these really sophisticated studies have have um, demonstrated that life events good and bad can actually alter the structure and function of um, DNA beyond beyond you know standard mutations so example you know um, control uh, Control the amount of acetylation of certain proteins within the DNA that affects how they're how they're ultimately transcribed and read. So this is an interesting theory, and in that it would would provide um, you know kind of um, really um, really tangible evidence for what you and I are talking about that that early early um, life stressful experiences or trauma could lead to um, dysfunctional neurocircuitry through through genetic material. And on a more positive note, really good, really good psychotherapeutic interventions um, at a really critical time, for example, could have an actual actual effect on on a patient's genetics and and thereby neurocircuitry. You know that's so interesting. It really is a quite becomes quite compelling. That, you know, we toss around this phrase gene environment interaction, but you're really talking that the environments, both good and bad, can actually change how genes work. <laughs> 
Would that be an overstatement? No, that's exciting to think about. Well, you know, uh, that would kind of suggest that we have a kind of a a, a brave new world future in front of us with all kinds of interesting discoveries to be made. You know, this has got to be complex, and I think of just uh, of these balancing systems that you tweak one and then there's some adjustment. It may not want to move too far. As you think about the future, what do you think the, the, the big breakthroughs and the kinds of areas we'll be looking at and finding things about in the next 10 years? Well, I'm hopeful that in the in the next ten years, and and God willing, in my lifetime, that we'll have. Um, you know, I'm very passionate about the idea of you know biomarkers that we will better better personalize um, psychotherapy and and you know chemical treatments. We just don't. We we do very careful careful interviews, and we have you know well well designed studies that have demonstrated that you know we. There are certain children that benefit from SSRIs, for example. I'm, as a clinician, still very, very concerned that we uh, feel that we could do better with matching, matching, you know, the appropriate treatment, be it, be it, what kind of psychotherapy does the child need, what, what, what type of medication. Hopefully, we'll have additional medications to balance these neurochemical systems you and I have been talking about, and improve, improve outcomes. So patients don't have to wait six months to get the get the correct treatment and to, to figure out what's going to work. And on a, on a, this is maybe a bit of a reach, but I feel like um, our lack of um, definitive understanding of the neurophysiology of our illnesses in some respects drives the stigma associated with mental illness. And I feel like a greater um, depth to that will help our patients and um, our practice. You know, we have many primary care providers who probably kind of wondering, worried about whether they should get their hands dirty, uh, so to speak, uh, intervening, uh, finding kids who might be depressed and learning how to intervene and assist these children. What would you tell them in terms of the difference they can or can't make uh, and the importance of age and in the diagnosis and management of depression? Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, Primary care, I think, is, um, you know, you and I have been kind of talking about chemicals and interesting ideas. But I think, I think um, I, I love what I do, but I feel like child psychiatry, our field, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a mess, which is frustrating, which is frustrating and inspiring. But we, we, definitely, we definitely need to, um, on our end, we need to do better and assist our primary care colleagues and um, get, them, get them comfortable and involved because they have an immense potential to um, improve the lives of children. It's critical that we, um, we do a better job of recognizing these, these illnesses. Where, even where we're at right now with current diagnostic systems and treatment, it's critical that we get you know, a higher level of um, identification and treatment because more than likely, um, the more we can do that on a larger scale, we're going to prevent morbidity for individuals, family systems, and society on a large level. And and for the primary care doctor, is there any evidence if they actually could find, identify, and assist these kids early, it'll actually make a difference in outcomes, or is there, you know, are their fates sealed, and there's nothing really the primary care doc can do? No, no, their their fates are not sealed. I mean, there's good evidence to suggest that their involvement will will optimize their outcomes. We have been talking today with Dr. Paul Corkin, a professor of psychiatry here at the Mayo Clinic, national expert in the neurobiology of depression uh, and its treatment. Paul, thank you so much. 
Thanks, Peter. We'd like to thank our listeners, and you can tune in to ReachMD, www.reachmd, and download this and other podcasts concerning depression, ADHD, bipolar disorder, conduct problems and aggression, part of the Mayo Clinic series on primary care child mental health. This is your host, Dr. Peter Jensen. Thank you for joining us, and tune in again. Thank you for listening to updates from the Mayo Clinic. And thank you to Shire Pharmaceuticals, whose educational grant makes this program possible. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show and many others, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash Mayo Clinic.